All right, so first off, if you were here last week, if you weren't, it's okay. But if you were here last week, I apparently offended many of you by talking to you about Joey the cat, who is on our property, and you're supposed to be nice to this cat because Joey the cat's like a dog. And as soon as I started talking about that, Joey blew up social media this week. He, believe me, he has no idea. Okay. But he, and all of a sudden, there are people from Santa Barbara to, San, to Orchid to Santa Maria thinking, that's my cat. My cat ran away. That's my cat. This was actually stapled up onto the pole outside. Someone's going to steal Joey. <laughs> Joey is not, if you're watching online, he's not your cat. <laughs> cat dog. He is not your cat if you're in the room. Joey was Pete and Michelle Newman's cat. And then when they moved, uh, Michael Reed took Joey in. Joey was living in the house forever. And now that Michael's got three kids under two in the house, Joey found out how to use the doggy door. <laughs> As, as you do, as you do. And so now he's roaming around the property. So there's another cat that lives right over the fence. His name is Duncan, three-legged cat. He used to have four. We got a hit on Clark. We thought he was done for, but he's not because they got nine lives. So <laughs> Duncan's back, three-legged, really sweet cat. But he and Joey, hmm, not so much. Outside of my office this week, I'm like, ah, Duncan, go home. And anyway, Joey's not your cat. Although you can pet him like a dog if he sees you because he's really friendly. Don't steal him. I don't know why that is so important to me to let you know, but don't steal Joey. All right. Uh, we are starting next week a brand new series on prayer. Uh, these are the booklets that we are giving you. There's not going to be sermon notes on the communion table starting next week. There is this week, but starting next week there's not. It is going to be these booklets, so please make sure you grab one. If you still forget, they will be here next week and throughout the series. If you're watching online and you'd like to get one of these, just go ahead and email to connect at rlmn.org, or you can actually put in that little chat box and let Sarah know if she'll find it. We also have prayer journals to go along with the prayer series. If you are someone who's like, oh, I'd never prayer journal, then don't take one. Okay? Don't be like, oh, but it's sweet. It's branded. I'm, I'm going to be all with the swag. You don't need to take one if you're not going to use it. Okay? So... If you want one, take one. That's why it's there if we, you want to learn how to journal. But grab one of each of these. Everything we're doing for the next 13 weeks is going to be in these booklets. So please grab one. If you haven't done so, take it with you. Just don't leave it in your car. There's, in the middle of these, what we're trying to do when we do these is help you guys to be able to learn how to have daily time with God if you don't have that right now. And there is a very simple one verse and a question every single day for you to go through and answer that kind of starts to get you into the habit of daily spending time with God. It's very short. You can take as long as you want, though. Uh, there are prayer points, things to pray for. It's just, it's a way to help us all grow together to become a praying people. And you'll get so much more of this over the next 13 weeks. But don't forget to grab one. And we also have, I did not know this until I grabbed this uh, this week and this went flying out. There's even like, like bookmarks. And if you read another book, you can stick this in there and be like, I'm going to open my book. Oh, I'm guilted into it. I guess I'll do the prayer thing. And then you can go back and, and read your book. <laughs> stick it everywhere, wherever you can do it. What am I supposed to do today? Oh, prayer. Where's my prayer journal? I lost it. Come and grab another one. We will have extras. 
Welcome to Element if you're new. Um, there, are, there are Bibles in the seat backs in front of you. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on the communion tables today throughout the room. They look like this. They are half sheets for coming to the end of the summer. And on the front, you get a place to write some notes. On the right-hand side, or my right, your left, it's going to be all the verses we're going through. On the bottom, you can ask a question. Like if you haven't, if we go through something today, it's like, I don't understand that. Ask a question. Any question about the Bible, you can put it in there. On the back, you're going to get a half-page recap and then some questions to go through that kind of remind you of what we talk about today. Uh, if you have a smart device, you can download an app. It is called Uversion. You click on More and then Events in Uversion. We will come up by GPS in your smart device, and you will get sermon notes, verses, questions, announcements, and everything that goes with today's message. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors at Element. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? We stand because it's important. Just not taking it out of context. Matthew 18, verse 20 says, Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Let's pray. Father, this morning we ask that you would teach us what it means to be a people who actually know that you are with us, even if it's just us alone. Uh, we ask that you would lead us into places where we honor you by reading your word in context. And that we would begin to live that out in ways that bring great glory to you. And how we begin to love those around us that steer us all back to your great compassion and mercy that you have given to us. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so we are doing this series called Never Read a Bible Verse. This is the last week of the series. I'm, I have a lot more questions, and we might do another one of these in, in the future. But we're trying to cover various concepts that people maybe have taken out of context because they didn't read all that the Bible teaches. And so we want you to read not just one verse, but we want you to read multiple verses to see what the Scriptures actually say. And today might be review for some of you, if it is great, and and this might also, if you've never heard this before, be the most freeing thing that you have ever heard. And that is, if you are alone and there is not two or three of you gathered, Jesus is still with you. How amazing is that? I have heard people quote this two or three gathered verses in small home Bible studies way too much. And everyone's assuming it means something it doesn't actually mean. When I was writing this series, it's all the way back in our minor series last year when I was putting this message together. And, you know, COVID's ending. We're getting people to come back together. And someone actually said to me, well, yeah, but I don't need to come because in my house it's like me and my kids or me and my spouse or me and some friends get together. There's two or three of us gathered. Therefore, Jesus is there. And I'm like, well... I believe Jesus is with you there, but we are called to be a people who gather corporately together. There is a, a joy and an exuberance when we actually join together, and you can feel it in a room like this. I think many times when we gather, you feel God's Spirit kind of move and teach in different ways than you do if you're just watching online. Not that, if you, not that you can't watch online sometimes. That's not what I'm saying, but it's good to gather with God's people. And so what I want to do is help you to understand what this verse means in context, because it's taken out of context way too often. If you have a Bible, open to Matthew chapter 18. That is on page 534 if you have an element Bible. And I'm going to talk about what this means. If you have a Bible that has red letters in it, uh, the red letters are like Jesus' words, so you know what Jesus' words are versus everything else. And if you look at Matthew 18 from chapter 2, or from verse 2 all the way through verse 20, it's all red letters. It's all Jesus' words. And so this has a trajectory to it when Jesus gets to saying where two or three are gathered. And Jesus starts with, who's the greatest in the kingdom? It's not us, obviously. Uh, it, uh, causing little ones to stumble. It will go into temptation. 
temptations to sin. He'll talk about parable of the lost sheep. And then he will get to Matthew 18, starting in verse 15. It says this, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Now, that's context. That's context. But what does it actually mean? Jesus will actually go on from this, and he will talk about a king who goes out to settle some debts in these accounts, and he finds a servant, and one servant refuses to settle correctly, and he becomes very angry. He refuses to acknowledge his sin. It doesn't go well for that guy, but this is still all in the context of two or three being gathered. So I'll get right to the, the point of this. We're at the very front, and out of, out of context, we are going to think that when two or three are gathered, obviously, oh, Jesus is there. Great. We won't look at the rest of it. But when we deal with this passage, this is not about Jesus being with us in a small Bible study. But when a group of people, a church, needs to gather together to make some sort of binding legal decision. And throughout the scriptures, you will see two or three people was always evidence that the Old Testament looked for. It couldn't just be one person making an accusation. There had to be witnesses in the midst of that. As a matter of fact, it was seriously about life and death in the Old Testament, like someone broke the law and it was like a death penalty. You had to have two or three witnesses. An accusation against an elder required two to three witnesses. When Paul talks about speaking in tongues in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 14, 27, he will say two or three at the most. The same thing when it talks about prophets. 1 Corinthians 14, 29, let two or three prophets speak. Two or three is this grounded concept throughout the scriptures of how we are to function when we need a witness for the truth. Now, what I want to do is walk through what this really means, and I don't know why I'm always saying stuff like this, because I guess it's my job to whittle down the intensity element as best I can, because I'm going to talk about something that nobody likes to do today, and that's what Jesus is talking about, and this is how we are supposed to confront one another. Oh, and I know, none of you like doing that unless you're online. Right? If you're online, it's like, oh, yeah, I'll say that, sure. I'm going to flame this over to you. Have you seen this website? Take this. And face-to-face, -face, you're like, hi, how's it going? Yeah, what are, you know. <laughs> so we're going to be frank and honest because when Jesus talks about this, this is doing it in person. There was no social media, no way you can fling barbs at each other. You've got to do this face-to-face. -face. It's going to be very practical. Again, I think everyone's okay confronting when it's online, but this is what we must do face-to-face -face with those that we love. I don't know if you have ever been caught or confronted doing something dumb. None of us like it when it happens, and we all try to hide. I'm sure there are Reddit threads all ab about this. I felt like I got caught in every single lie growing up. Uh, one time, there are multiple times, one time uh, I am 16 years old, which is a terrible age for me. <laughs> I was always getting in trouble. And my mom comes into my room in the morning as she was wont to do, and she goes, did you have people over in our hot tub this weekend? They were out of town for the weekend. And I said, no, because I didn't have friends over in the hot tub that weekend. And she opens up my hamper, and she's all, towel, towel, towel. She's all, you had friends. And I, at that point, I, I was known for not always being the most honest, so there's nothing I could say at that point. But my brother had friends over, and they were in the hot tub. It wasn't me. Now, I did have friends over. 
We just weren't in the hot tub. And I was grounded. <laughs> and I was, I was grounded, so I wasn't supposed to have friends over. So, yeah, I was wrong, but I was also right. It wasn't actually me. <laughs> Sometimes I will buy something, and my wife will say, what is that? And I'll be like, nothing, you know. <laughs> Just don't like getting caught. On, on a really serious note, I have sat in a room with a the, with the young dad who was doing drugs, and he would not admit to it until a cop and a probation officer and the guy's wife's dad all came over. I have sat in rooms with people who were committing adultery, and they said, no, I'm not doing that, and they wouldn't fess up till it until, until evidence, which is like video and photo and audio, was laid before them. Uh, Sean O'Donnell tells this story when he was four years old or in fourth grade. And his principal had him come into her office, and, and she says, how was your time in the library yesterday? And he's like, uh, fine. The recess the day before, he got in trouble, so he had to go to the library and shelve all the new books they got. And so she says, young man, did you come and deface library property? He didn't know what deface meant because he's in the fourth grade. He's all, I, I don't think so. And so she goes, open these books. There's two stacks of books, and inside every single one, in bright orange permanent marker, marker it, says, it says Douglas, and he's the only Douglas in the school, Sean, he's the only Douglas Sean O'Donnell. He's not the only O'Donnell, but he was the only Douglas Sean O'Donnell. And then he knew what deface meant, because in every single one of those books, he wrote his name right across the inside of the title page. Jesus, I'll save your lies. None of us like getting caught when we do something dumb. When my first reaction, when I am confronted, is I want to fight with somebody. I'm like, no, that's not true, or I want to explain it away. It's always a humbling experience, especially when it is true. It makes us feel small, and we don't like the feeling small, but it's really interesting how Jesus talks about entering into the kingdom of God before he gets to two or three. It talks about this humbleness, this smallness. That's how we begin to enter. And honestly, if confrontation can help us to move to a place of smallness and humbleness and honesty, it is something that we all from time to time we need. The, the, the thing is, if we really trusted the gospel, I think what God says over us, at we are God's children, we are brought into relationship with him, then we wouldn't fight so much when we are caught in something dumb because we know that our identity is not in the thing we did. It's in what God says over us. And so we really need to trust the gospel so we don't need to lie about our shortcomings. And, you know, in the end, we want our identity to all come from who Christ says that we are because God's grace has covered us. But if we need to confront, and it does need to be done, the, the text here of what Jesus says is how the church then comes in and confronts the church. How do we do that with one another? So what I want to do is I want to start with why we would even do this, and then we'll talk about how we will do it. And I know you're very excited to be here this morning. Go you. Uh, confrontation, when it gets to the highest level Jesus talks about, has been called church discipline. It is not popular today. It's actually never been popular in really any age. It's like uh, today, it's like getting a kid getting a spanking in a, in a store. Almost no kids, when they get in trouble at the store, get spanked in the middle of a store anymore because someone's like, CWS, 911, how dare you? When anybody hears about somebody being asked to leave a church, they never are like, oh, what'd that person do? They start to think, oh, that church must be really controlling. Oh, that must be like a cult. What's wrong with those people? Why would they ever ask somebody to leave? They never are like, what'd that guy do? They're always like, oh, that church is a bunch of crazy people. No one ever goes down to what Jesus actually says. Jesus, the epitome of love and grace, assumes that at times this might actually need to happen. Now, Sometimes, and I have seen this done very poorly throughout certain ages and even today in the church, there are some churches who want to keep people under their thumb. And when we talk about this, you have to understand, I in this am not even above you. 
This is how we do it with everybody, all of us, level playing field before God. And so at Element, I will tell you, we, I think, have done this twice in the course that Element has been a church. And one of them was when we had a guy who was abusing his wife and he was trying to keep coming in in order to make her do what he wanted. And we came to the point and we said, you are not welcome. And so that's one of the reasons why we have done it. So just keep that in your mind because there's a lot of churches who do this poorly, but we want to do it the right way. So why should Christians confront one another? Uh, There are four reasons, one from this text and then three from surrounding texts. The first one is this. Confrontation shows that we value those that we are confronting. We value them. It's not because we're angry. It's not because we want to belittle them. It's because we value them. Uh, Matthew 18, 12, Jesus says, What do you think if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray? Does he not leave the 99 on the mountain and go in search of the one that went astray? Jesus will move from the parable of the lost sheep, which is about how God values each individual Christian, even the strange sheep, and then he will drop into this proclamation of two or three because they're linked. The Father has a concern for sinners. Shepherds have a concern for their lost sheep that have wandered, so it's supposed to be our concern as well. The church confronts because we value each other. And when we see them strain, we want to be able to step into each other's lives and steer us back to who God calls us to be. Secondly, confrontation, when it needs to be done, we do it in the hope of forgiveness and family reconciliation. We do not do it because we're simply mad or angry. We do it because we want to restore relationships. Now, in the context, he uses the word brother. That word brother can be brother or sister, so it can be either. It's generic kind of for Christian, men, women, children in Christ. And so this highlights what is called a family relationship. We are meant to see one another as family. You may have a terrible family. Well, there's a bunch of weirdos in the church too, but we are meant to be a family that comes together and sees one another as that family. And so when we come together, we want to encourage one another to stay in relationship with each other. Now, when people do repent, uh, there's this thing in the Bible called the parable of the prodigal son. There is this kid, he takes his dad's money, he runs off and just kind of squanders it. And when he comes to the place of repentance, as he comes back, the father doesn't stand behind a shut door and let the kid knock 25 times and be like, yeah, you're done spending my money now. He doesn't do that. He sees the kid far off. He runs to him. He embraces him. He kisses him. He forgives him. He welcomes him back. And this is how we are to be with repenting brothers and sisters. We welcome them back in because we want to have that relationship restored. The third reason why we confront is it stops little things from becoming big things. When you don't confront somebody and they've hurt you, that will start to fester and get larger and larger. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6 says, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? That's like yeast in dough. Jesus and Paul both say this. The yeast goes in, causes the dough to rise. Somebody does something that hurts you. You don't go and talk to them. You start talking to everybody else. We used to infected them. And they might talk to somebody else. Did you hear what so-and-so did to so-and-so? Oh, and then boom, it affects somebody else. And all of a sudden, because you haven't talked to that person, you have infected the whole dough. And this is one of the reasons why we confront that person when something happens. We are trying to guard the proclamation of the gospel in the body of Christ. We want to see one another walk with him. Jesus in Matthew 18, verse 7, warns mature believers not to let temptations come from them. And imagine if something hurts you and you start telling everybody else about it and not the person you're actually angry at and you call yourself a mature Christian, well, you're causing others to stumble. 
So we must be those who don't let those little things become big things. Uh, It's kind of like if you tell your kid, uh, go clean your room when you're done, you get a cookie. And they don't clean the room, but it's like, oh, I love you anyway. I'll still give you a cookie. And and then what are they going to learn, right? They don't need to clean the room to get the cookie. If you have more than one kid, you're going to have a missy house and all the kids with the diabetes. We confront because Christ calls us to, which is number four. Confrontation is actually a command of Jesus. Now, there is a way to confront. When you confront, we think it's like this angry, uh, that is not how confrontation has to be. Okay, the Great Commission, Jesus says, teach people all that I have taught you. And one of the things that he says is confrontation, so we do it. Today, I get so tired of news report after news report of people who won't actually follow Jesus. And typically, the news reports are very positive. This church isn't following the, the men of the Bible. How great are they? I'm like, guys, look, we don't get to have a different view on race. We are all one race. Humanity is one race. We must see each other as God's children. We don't get to have other views on money and stuff. We don't get to have other views on eternity. We live out what Christ calls us to because he is Lord of all and Lord of the church. And this is why we confront in a way that wants to bring about reconciliation. In context in Matthew 18, Jesus is most likely referring back to the Levitical law, Leviticus 19, verses 17 and 18, where it says, you shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall not do that. But you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, and that could be in confrontation, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Why? It says, I am the Lord. That's why. Do you love me? Do you love me? If you love me, then don't bear these grudges against one another. And today we get this all backwards. We have this thing where people say, you love the sinner and hate the sin. And people say, you can't do that. That's impossible to love the sinner and hate the sin. How is that impossible? I think it's, it's perfectly reasonable because what? I can't hate an addict's addiction while trying to get that person help? I can't hate racism while praying for that racist to change? I mean, this is what we need to do. In our world, we are told that love is tolerating what anybody around us wants to do, and we have to accept it all. And if you don't accept it all, well, those people who first claim to be so tolerant are no longer tolerant of you, and they want to cancel you. What we want to do is be a people who go out and engage in relationships that grow all of us to learn how to come together and see the greatness of who Christ is. Open and affirming is not trying to say, oh, everything goes. In Scripture, love and holiness and discipline, they all walk hand in hand together. Care and confrontation, they go together. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 and 6 says, Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? And again, that means sons and daughters. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Because God loves us, God steps in and he disciplines us. The Holy Spirit many times will confront our own hearts and say, hey, I want you to wake up. It is loving, not unloving, for us to go after one another in love. It is loving for a shepherd to go after lost sheep. The unloving shepherd stays at home, and he's kind of like, yeah, you know, what's one sheep out of a hundred? No big deal. Or he's lenient. Sheep are going to be sheep, or they're just lazy. So Christians are called to confront one another because we value each other, because we have a hope for reconciliation. We don't want those little things to become bigger things, and because it's a loving command from the most loving one who ever lived. Okay, following me in that? Half of you, great. All right, the rest of you go listen to the podcast. It'll be up tomorrow. Um, So how do we confront then? 
how do we do this? I'm going to give you three steps. Uh, these are from uh, Sean O'Donnell, the guy that gave the story about, you know, when he was in the fourth grade earlier. This is how he broke it out, and I like this. So number one is this. It's go and gain. And you go and gain by having a private conversation. Uh, Matthew 18, verse 15, Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. See, he doesn't say, go find all your friends, tell them how angry you are, and that'll make it better. No, between you and him alone, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. The relationship gets restored. So who's confronting who? Brother to brother, brother to sister, sister to sister, sister to brother. It's, again, family. Some people in our world today hear that and think it sounds really cultish. Oh, the family. No, it's just how a family is supposed to function. We're supposed to see one another that way. And so these are directions for the church's confrontation of one another in the church. It is not talking about how we confront the world. Not that there's not a place for that at some point. But verse 15 is describing between believers. And the confrontation is also it says if your brother sins against you now i know when we hear that we think it's some like big thing someone ran over your dog uh, stabbed your grandma made you listen to country music in their vehicle you know something horrible like that now when it talks about this if there is something in your heart that holds something against somebody else because of something they did that's talking about that you don't let that fester you have to go and you have to deal with it jesus in this verse is not calling us to take a spotlight through everybody's closet and find all of their dirt he's calling us to confront when something has happened between us and someone else. That's why that first step is a private conversation. He says, between you and him alone. That does not mean if you see someone who claims to be a Christian publicly disgracing Christ, you don't say anything. It means the emphasis here is on that family relationship. Two people in relationship that has been severed by some sin, small or large. Jesus assumes that Christians are going to sin against one another. If you are surprised by that, that's probably why you're offended all the time. Because you think Christians should, they should be perfect. We're not, okay? We're not. We mess up. Peter, right after this in verse 21, will go to Jesus and say, Jesus, how many times should I forgive people who sin against me? Acting like he doesn't sin against anybody else. And Jesus is like, ah, my disciples. <laughs> it's, 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 it's great. It's great. And this is why God promises that he is going to daily conform us to the image and likeness of his son. That God in loving care does this with us. It's a process. Peter will even sin against Jesus by denying him. And Jesus will follow his own advice. Jesus will go and seek out Peter at the end of the book of John, one-on-one. -on -one. He confronts him, and he restores relationship with him. Step one is not to sit back and wait. I'm not making the first move. They've got to come to me to figure this out. It's not sulking around. Oh, I can't believe what, what they did to me. It's not ignoring the issue. It's not, hey, what's wrong with you? What's wrong with me? What's wrong with you? You know, it's, it's not that. It's not let bygones be bygones. And it's not gossip. Oh, do you know what so-and-so did to me? It is go and gain the private conversation between you and somebody else. And if you have a Bible and you don't mind writing in your Bible, I want you to circle or underline that you and him alone. If you're using an element Bible, go ahead and write in that. If you leave it here, one day someone's going to open it up and be like, what? And it'll be there. So this private conversation should be done in gentleness. In gentleness, that's how it starts. The prophet Nathan, when he goes to King David and confronts him in his adultery, he does it in gentleness. The apostle Paul models this, but the apostle Paul also says that there are times when gentleness doesn't do, and you have to be a little more harsh. 
Titus 1.3, Paul will say of uh, false teachers, rebuke them sharply. Why? That they may be sound in the faith. Not because you're angry, but because you want them to be sound in the faith. In Galatians 2.11, Paul will go and he will confront Peter to his face because Peter stood condemned because he was going back into legalism. But later in Galatians 6.1, Paul tells the church, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Our first way we do this is in gentleness. Yes, there's a time for confrontation that's tougher, but first we do it in gentleness. So whatever your demeanor, you know, every person's kind of kind of be different, but God's spirit should lead us in humility and love because we are concerned about reconciliation, not about being right, but about reconciliation. So we go hoping to gain, restoring each other. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, Life Together, he writes this, send the man to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him. And the more deeply he becomes involved in it, the more disastrous is his isolation. And this is what happens when you're alone and no one's kind of going and gaining. You sit alone in that. Then he says this, but in confession, the light of the gospel breaks into the darkness and seclusion of the heart. The sin must be brought to the light. Since the confession of sin is made in the presence of a Christian brother, that last stronghold of self-justification is abandoned. That means we do with one another. We have to lay aside all of our self-justification, why it's all okay. And when you talk to somebody else, it's like, yeah, this was sin and, and I need your help and thank you for going and gaining. What happens if it doesn't go well, though? Because I'm sure you know, you may have done this with somebody in your life and it did not go well. Well, what happens next? Step two, Jesus says, is then you establish evidence. Okay, when it's, a, when it's a big thing, verse 16, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. There's two or three. That's what it says right there. If there is only denial, Jesus says you take other people with you to establish. And that doesn't mean you go and grab the elders at element. What that means is you take other people who are in relationship with that person as well so that you have two or three who know that person and love them in an intimate way that can also speak into that so they will see. Again, the reality is that when most of us get confronted, we will either get defensive or embarrassed, and some of us will run away, or some of us get proud and just shut everybody off. This is why a personal focus on what the gospel actually is, is so important for every single one of us. Uh, and, and it's also, in looking back to this goes to Deuteronomy 19, where you bring two or three because your charge may actually be false against that person. Or that person may throw some false charges against you. So you have more backup with you there in that moment. And so it's meant to go both ways because the person there is not to be treated like a criminal. They are treated like family, like an equal, brother to brother, brother to sister, sister to sister, sister to brother. It's family coming together. Because what happens next if it just goes poorly there as well? Well, then it goes to the whole church as a matter of attention. And so this is why you have two or three witnesses. So step three becomes this thing called church censure. Now, this is the hard part. This is the one that people are like, oh, what's wrong with those people? They sound like a cult. What's going on with them? Well, verse 17, Jesus says, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So it's clearly saying the blame here, if it gets to this point, is on this individual. They are not listening because it started one-on-one, -on -one, two or three with that person, and now it's the whole church body. The key here is listening. 
Are we listening, not just to one another, but as God's Spirit moves and leads us? Again, this is not just about how to confront, but also how do we respond to confrontation when it is true? We listen. When Jesus says, like a Gentile or tax collector, he's not disparaging Gentiles or tax collectors. He's talking about how people felt about them. You don't typically invite them over for dinner. Do you invite the IRS agent over to your house after he audits you? No. You have a certain feeling inside of you about the IRS agents. It's not that an IRS agent or a Gentile can't become a follower of God. Most of us in this room are Gentiles, so that's not what he's saying. It's important to understand that God's renown in the world is tied to his people. And again, sometimes I wonder why God would do that, because we are so messed up. And yet God's renown is tied to us. And that is why in a family we want to lift up the grace and the goodness of who he is. These admonitions are pointed towards believers. In the New Testament, there is that time where unrepentant people are barred from public gatherings like communion or prayer meetings. That doesn't mean you can't say hello to them in the grocery store or something like that. But not being in corporate worship is meant to be a thing that pulls on someone's heart to come to the place where they say, yes, I am running this direction and I want to return to follow Christ. In 2 John verse 10, it says, If any false teacher comes to you, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. And the assumption there is that person knows they're a false teacher. In Titus 3 verse 10, it says, For a person who comes and stirs up division, it says, Warn him once and then twice and then have nothing more to do with them. If they're always stirring up division and they know it. 1 Corinthians 5.11 says, Do not associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. So they're running around, I'm a follower of Jesus. If they're guilty of sexual immorality or greed or, or an idolater or a reviler, a drunkard, a swindler, do not even eat with such a one. Why? Because they're saying, Oh, I'm a believer and all the things God calls me to, it doesn't really matter. Because they're not living for the name of Christ. The motive is not punishment. The motive is not control. The motive is not anger. It is a sincere hope that would make somebody come to their senses to repent and return. In 2 Thessalonians 3.15, Paul speaks of doing this not because we think of these people as our enemies, but we do it because we think of them as our family. That's why we do it. So Jesus speaks about two or three being gathered in these situations because he knows an objection is going to come up when he dies and rises from the grave and ascends into heaven and he's no longer bodily with us. And when this happens, people would say, well, who says who? What right do you have? You're not God. You don't get to judge me. To that objection, Jesus says, verse 18, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. And when we read this, right, you have to understand the words and context of what Jesus says. We hear heaven, paradise, one day. When Jesus speaks like this, this is talking about the kingdom of God, the rule and the reign of God. Not one day, but what is taking place right now in our lives as the church, we are living in the kingdom of God. God, verse 20, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. These verses are not about getting the indwelling presence of the risen Christ. It's that the local church gathers together and they have to deal with some really tough issue. Then what they decide in that local body is decided in that kingdom of God. Does that make sense? Now, if he doesn't write the question down, we'll deal with it later. <laughs> But that's the thing. And, and you have to understand, if we are not following Jesus, this can turn into control. And there are a lot of churches, I think, out there today who use this as a form of control. They think that their pastors or their elders are above everybody else and no one can question us. Guys, I am telling you, 
If there's something in my life that you see that you think you need to confront, you come and confront me. You do that. I am not above you. We are a family together. Together. That is how we will live and worship and honor God, by living this life together. And so I am not above anybody. And when it's not done right, it turns into a power play. But when we follow the truth of the gospel, this is actually grace. It is loving one another, not condoning everything. We say no in some circumstances, but we are always welcoming people back. We, we welcome one another because we are not perfect, but Jesus is. And so we understand our brokenness before him. And then we surrender, and we surrender ourselves to him. And surrender comes when we're no longer looking to our own whims. We're looking towards his truth. And for that to work out, we must be a people who understand what the gospel is. And what is the gospel? The gospel is that Jesus came to us in our broken and lost state. That Jesus saves us in the midst of our sin, in the midst of the ways that we are running from him and hurting one another when we're not confronting correctly, where some little thing happens and we go and, and infest all of our friends and talking to the person we're supposed to. All of those things are sin and it makes us run from God. We're rebelling against his name. We are not bringing glory to who he is. And yet Jesus steps into that and takes all that sin upon himself so that our relationship with God would then be restored again. This is the grace and the beauty of what Jesus does. Our, our blood, our lives can never cover our own sin. It just can't. And so Jesus comes and he dies for us in our place. Everything that separated us from God and us from one another was taken care of in the person of Christ. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus died the death we deserve to die that he lived the life that we should have lived, and so he gives his righteousness to us as a gift. And before God, because what Christ has done, God sees the righteousness of Christ in us. That's the good news of the gospel. And that means that we don't have to have it all together, that when we mess up or we get confronted, you know what, that's actually okay. It's okay. Because our identity is not in how good we are. Our identity is in that Christ has come to rescue and save us and call us into God's family, and we get to be God's chosen people because God is the one who chooses us. Not because we're so good or great, but because he is so graceful and he is so merciful to bring us into relationship with him. That's the gospel. And that is the only way, understanding that, that we'll ever confront one another in ways that bring about grace and mercy and hope and reconciliation. That's the only way it'll happen. Because it's not about our anger. It's not about us being right. It's about the glory of God and wanting one another to live in that hope of reconciliation with God himself. And this is why we come to communion every week. It's a reminder of what Christ did to bring us back, to reset us on what the gospel is. That's why you break a cracker like Christ's body was broken for us, and you dip it in the wine of the grape juice as a reminder of his blood that was shed for us, that we get new life again. And if you need prayer, maybe you have somebody in your life that you need to go to and, and talk to, or maybe somebody has come to you and you kind of blew them off and you want someone to pray and talk with you about that before you go back and start that reconciliation process, talk to Sarah at the Welcome Center. She'll connect you with one of us, and we'd love to be able to pray with you about that. Uh, we are also a people who, who give, and we give because God has been so generous to us. That's why there's offering boxes around the room. We don't pass a plate. It is always a response to what God has done. When we understand his graciousness and his majesty that God has given to us hope and life and reconciliation and relationship with him. And it's beautiful. And I encourage you to grab the sermon notes that are last week on the table. Also grab your prayer book. Uh, grab the sermon notes and go through those questions on the back with your friends or your family, your gospel community and kind of walk through those. Are there places when you've been confronted and didn't want to deal with it? Are there places where someone has 
confronted you or you need to confront somebody else. What, what does that look like? What does that look like for you? And then how do we do that in a way that always comes back and centers upon the good news of the gospel? Because that's what we want in the end. It's not people to say, oh, yeah, I'm sorry, you're right. We want people to be reconciled to God himself. And that should be our goal in all that we do. So grab some server notes and talk to some people about it. And let's be a people who live out in this world understanding our own great salvation and understanding what God has called us to. And we'd actually begin to live as the people of God. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would take and teach us what it means to be those who live as your ambassadors to this world, your hands and feet, that we are called to be your priests, that as crazy as it is, we represent who you are to this world. And so often we get that so out of whack because we get so consumed with ourselves and how our pride has been hurt, of how someone has done something to us. Rather than understanding in the end, what we want is them to come to you. Because when we do come before you and we do see who we are, we do recognize our sin. And our lives do begin to change. And we do seek reconciliation. And we do apologize to one another. But it's because we first understand who you are. So teach us to be those who do understand the great grace that we received. And I ask that you would then give us the strength to live as your people in this world. Because it seems like it's getting harder and harder and we haven't even hit the hardest part yet. I ask that you would give us a conviction to truly live in your grace and life and that we would extend that to one another that you would be honored by how we live, love, how we confront and step into each other's lives and how ultimately that we glorify you. Teach us to truly live as your people in this world so that all would know the great grace that we received. Amen. We're going to drop the blinds. Just take a couple moments real quick. And is there anybody in your life right now that you need to go and confront? Not out of anger, but out of hope for reconciliation and restored relationship. And as Jesus says, it's not always going to go well. It doesn't always go well. But is there someone that you need to start that process with right now? Ask God to reveal that to you. If there is somebody who has come to you and tried to deal with something with you and you just kind of blew it off, went away, ask God to reveal that to you and that you would step back in and say, you know what, you were right. This thing was happening. And I want to be able to trust God enough to grow through this because my worth does not come from me being right. My worth comes because God has called me his child. And that means we can walk through places when we are confronted when it's true and still come out the other side in a place of growth and hope and restoration. So ask God to reveal that to you right now. Then come and take communion, sing a couple songs with us and head into this world as his hands and feet. Be the people he calls us all to be so the world would know because we carry the renown of his name. As crazy as it is, 
we get to, and it's beautiful.